I'm pleased to introduce tonight's moderator, Joe Matthews. Joe is a fourth-generation Californian. He writes about his home state and its politics, media, labor, and real estate. He's the author of The People's Machine, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Rise of Blockbuster Democracy, an account of Governor Schwarzenegger's first term and his use of ballot measures as governing tools. He is a fellow at the New America Foundation. Before he joined New America, he was a reporter for eight years at something called the Los Angeles Times, where he covered state and presidential politics, education, labor, and the city of Compton. Previously, he covered the Justice Department for the Wall Street Journal. He began his career in 1994 as a reporter on the city desk of the Baltimore Sun, where he wrote about urban issues and the environment. His coverage of a down-on-its-luck neighborhood of former slaughterhouses earned him the incomparable title of Bard of Pigtown. His stories have appeared in the New Republic, the Washington Post, Politico, and Condé Nast Portfolio. Please welcome the Bard of Pigtown, Mr. Joe Matthews. Thank you, Gregory. Thanks very much, Gregory. I haven't heard about Pigtown in a long time. Um, I want to start with some, um, uh, some bad news and an apology, which also, uh, also may be good news for the state. Uh, Mike Janest, who uh, is uh, Governor Schwarzenegger's uh, Director of Finance, um, uh, it was a late scratch here tonight, uh, couldn't be with us. Um, I offered the administration several opportunities to send someone in his place and uh, they declined. Uh, Mike uh, explained to me that uh, uh, they're very close to a deal, very, very close to a deal, he says, and so um, he needed to be up in Sacramento. Um, I want to thank the panelists who I'll introduce as, as we, uh, as each of them begins to talk, but also want to thank the Zocalo staff, especially Dulce Vasquez and Laura Villalpondo, um, and the controller staff, um, uh, uh, with a particular nod to Gloria Polito and Hallie Jordan, um, and to um, uh, Peter's aide, Alyssa Binner. Um, uh, so let me sort of try to frame this issue a little bit, and then I'll have our, our panelists who understand the state's finances much better than I uh, correct me. Um, we essentially have two problems we're dealing with here as a state, um, and they're related. Uh, one is a budget deficit, which has been estimated by the Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger administration at something like uh, $40 billion over this current fiscal year and the following fiscal year. And then we have a cash crunch. Um, California, uh, by the state's estimate, only has on hand about $6 in cash for every $10 in bills at the moment. Um, now, in a, in a typical year, um, after the legislature and the governor agree to a balanced budget, um, the state um, you know, has to manage its cash flow, and it, it, it borrows from special funds that are part of the government and, and, and goes to uh, investors to sort of smooth out its cash flow. Some part times, parts of the year, um, there's a lot of money coming into the state um, of taxes. Uh, other parts, uh, not so much. Um, but in this fiscal year, uh, the combination of, uh, of very weak revenues and a limited access uh, to the credit markets um, has reduced the state's um, resources to address these sort of monthly cash flow um, deficits. So here's our problem. Um, related and, and other issues which may come up tonight, our credit rating is now the lowest in the nations. Um, we've got many of our infrastructure projects frozen, um, and there hasn't been any action, um, as you may know, from the legislature or the governor. Uh, the governor called a fiscal emergency in a special session uh, 97 uh, 
days ago, I, I have a bet with a friend on whether um, there will be a, um, a resolution, a deal, or uh, whether Manny Ramirez will be re-signed first. Um, feel free to bet amongst yourselves. Um, we have a very distinguished panel tonight to explain what this means. Um, we're going to start with um, uh, John Chung, the state controller, who's to my right. Uh, just so you know, the controller is the chief fiscal officer of California. Um, he's elected every four years. Uh, the controller is supposed to make sure that the, the, the state's budget, which is $100 billion, is spent properly. Um, he helps administer billions in state pension funds, and he actually serves on 76 state boards and commissions. We have a lot of boards and commissions in California uh, that involve everything from protecting the coastline to overseeing how uh, crime victims are compensated. Um, John is a, uh, is a rising star in California politics. He was elected to the office in 2006. Um, his story is a, he's the son of immigrant parents. Um, He's, uh, he graduated with honors from the University of South Florida. He has a law degree from Georgetown. He lives in Torrance. Um, he began his career as a tax specialist with the IRS um, and previously served as an attorney in the state controller's office. And he was uh, first elected to the Board of Equalization, the State Board of Equalization in 1998. He served two terms there, including uh, three years as chair. He's been involved in a number of issues, um, uh, among them um, financial literacy, um, I want to um, start with him uh, and ask you to kind of set the scene. You're the, the person who has to send out the cash and, and sign the checks. How are you managing this shortage of cash? Um, what are your days like? Um, are there, do you talk to paintings on the walls of the controller's office? Tell us what, what this has been like and what you're up to. Sure, let me give you an explanation of uh, where we are at. Uh, when in the controller's office, it is a six-step cash management process. Uh, the first step is the use of general revenue funds. The three major sources of general revenues to the state of California are personal income taxes, which make up anywhere, anywhere from 51 to 53% of the state budget, sales taxes, uh, which is a component of transactional taxes, making up about 27% of the state budget, and corporate taxes, which make up 7 to 9% of the state budget. That is the first line of uh, spending here in California, the source of revenues. Now, unfortunately, the last day we were net cash positive in the state of California was July 12, 2007. So we have been not operating properly, positively, for the last year and a half. The second uh, source of revenues is special funds. There are over a thousand special funds in the state of California over 650 of which are bar uh, we can borrow from legally. Uh, for giving an example, oil spill prevention fee. We, there's a fee that's paid uh, in the event that we have a oil spill off the coast of California. Uh, today, uh, over the last year and a half, we borrowed $16.5 billion from those funds. If we had an oil spill off the coast of California tonight, California uh, would be in serious financial trouble close to default, if not defaulting, because we wouldn't have the funds available to pay uh, for those critical services. The third area, uh, it is called revenue anticipation notes, revenue anticipation warrants. They are a form of external borrowing. We go to the markets, we go to Peter. Uh, Peter charges us a good chunk of change. Uh, he's, <laughs> you know, if he, if he, uh, and we, we borrow from Wall Street or other entities. Uh, we borrowed $5 billion this year. We have borrowed 25 out of the last 26 fiscal years. 
uh, because we spend a lot of money up front in a fiscal year and then we hope to make up the difference in April through tax collections. The problem is when we don't budget properly, we budget much too optimistically and we don't get the April revenues. Now we are at step four and step five. Step four is the governor and legislature coming up with a sound budget solution. Right, that's what they're trying to negotiate. Uh, they did not get it right earlier this year. They signed a budget 85 days late. Uh, when the governor signed it, we walked into this fiscal year, uh, $15.2 billion in debt. The governor signed the budget. Don Parada, the former Senate president pro tem, said it was a terrible budget, but he was so frustrated that there was no movement in the legislature. So governor signed the bill. I said, we are out of, uh, we are out of balance the moment it was signed, right? And that was gonna come down to roost. Now, the governor got up to $14.8 billion deficit four weeks after he signed the bill, right? That's part of the concern. The fifth step is what I'm doing now, uh, which is called cash deferrals, right? To give you an example, let's say you have, you've run out of cash in your own household finances. You have the mortgage bill, you have the utility bill, you have the food bill, uh, all due, right? Cash deferrals are, I might pay the mortgage because I wanna stay in my house, but I may put, put off for a couple weeks the utility bill until I actually have the cash. That's what we're doing now. The sixth step is IOUs. We will issue IOUs under two conditions, if we run out of cash, or if the governor and legislature do not support a deficiency letter for me operating in the red to pay for these obligations. For those of you who want to get more technical, I'll talk about it later on. And then the next step after IOUs is default. That is what I'm trying to prevent, right? If you default, we, the state under the federal law cannot file for bankruptcy, but we can default. Uh, as some financial analysts would put it, it is the nuclear meltdown of state finances. And why I have to do step number four, or five, cash deferrals, is to make sure that the state doesn't go into default, right? People are saying, John, you're not paying income tax refunds, you're not paying social security checks, right? If we default, not only will I not be paying it now, I won't be paying for the next month, the month after. Uh, people on Wall Street won't be lending us money. We'll have significant judicial lawsuits, and we'll be in massive trouble. Can you um, talk a little bit more in detail about sort of the rubber hits the road? Who's really going to get hurt? Obviously, you talked about deferring on tax refunds. Let's say this goes another month. Who, who's starting to get hurt then? I mean, what, yeah, what people, specific? People are hurt today. People are very hurt today. The, uh, and it, it's terrible that we've let it get to this particular point. Uh, in the cash deferral strategy, I am following the law as provided by the California Constitution, by federal law, and by court order. So under the California Constitution, the number one priority payment for the state of California is the payment to education. That has to be made. Don't make that payment. Uh, we violate the California Constitution. The second most important payment under con California Constitution is debt service, right? It's the failure to pay debt service that puts California in default of debt and puts us in huge trouble. The third is the special funds that I referenced earlier, such as the oil spill prevention fee or you know, some of those recycling fees. The fourth is the payroll. Uh, there's some covered under the California law and the state employees are co covered under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, there's, the, the fifth obligation is Medi-Cal, certain payments under Medi-Cal that are matched by the federal government. The sixth payment is pension, right? So if you're a state employee or teachers, you, those pension plans will be made. Uh, what is not covered is income tax refunds. Those are not covered. Payments, the state component to Social Security Administration for the aged, the blind, the disabled. Cal grants aren't covered. 
private sector payments are not covered. Now, the governor and I worked out an exception. Of those payments that normally would not be paid, we paid the small business vendor as defined by the Department of General Services. People making less than uh, 12 million a year and less than 100 employees. And you may be asking, why did we exempt that category? Well, if we pay them a moment late, they are entitled to 91.25% interest, right? So that's why we pay them, right? Because we don't want to start doubling up on our obligations here in the state of California. Now, those communities are impacted. I want you to know that it's not that my office doesn't feel the pain and the harm. Uh, my office, while we had to delay those payments, worked very actively to protect those people. So my staff contacted the University of California, the Cal State University system, the community college system saying, do not kick those students out of college because of what the state failed to do, right? And luckily we had some strong leadership by educational leaders who said, we're gonna try to move around some funding so that we can keep the students here until the state provides the money. Then my staff also contacted the Social Security Administration asking them not to stop the payments to the aged, the blind, the disabled. So they have continued to agree to make those payments for the month of February. We are talking to them about in the event this budget continues, the budget stalemate, asking them to continue the payments in March and subsequent months. Closer to the mic. Um, what about IOUs? That's been something that's been written about a lot, the, the registered warrants and official um, financial speak. At what stage do you send those out and, and and, and, and what prospects are there that someone will, that, that banks or financial institutions will cash them? Okay. IOUs, in, uh, and then in technical parlance, registered warrants are the next step if we run out of cash, right? So if we really don't have enough cash left in the coffers of the state of California, we would issue IOUs. Now, you may be wondering, politically, some people are saying, John, just issue the IOUs, right? They want me to take the next step because they want us near the edge of the cliff cliff to make sure that the legislature would try to take and the governor would take more rapid action. I think that would be very imprudent. Uh, why I don't issue IOUs is that IOUs hamper the ability of the state to legally maneuver your cash. So for instance, if I issue Larry Kaplan, who was back there somewhere, there's Larry. L Larry is a taxpayer of the state of California and I issue him an IOU. And then Joe is Mr. Debt Service, he's Mr. Wall Street. The moment I issue the IOU, right, it is sequential, right? I have to pay it out in a certain order. So if my most important payment is to Joe so that the state of California does not default, if I issue an IOU, I have to make the payment to Larry first, right? And in paying Larry and all the other taxpayers or welfare payments or something else, I may not have enough cash to pay Joe, and then the state of California will be in de default, and we will have total calamity. That's why I don't issue, try not to issue IOUs. However, if you do get IO, issued IOUs, you will get 5% interest. I, I actually have people saying, John, give me an IOU, I want 5% interest. <laughs> I, I actually made that request of John backstage. Yeah, there's, um, there's a long line. <laughs> um, at this point, let's let's um, shift over to um, to Peter Taylor, who I want to introduce. Um, um, Peter's a managing director at Barclays Capital. He's based here in the LA office. Um, he joined Barclays in September 2008 after a, a long career at at a firm called Lehman Brothers. Um, he was uh, he's based in the firm's fixed income division and. 
Um, Peter's worked with um, many state and local governments, uh, uh, utilities, um, largely in the West, uh, California, Arizona, Nevada. Um, he structured floating rate, commercial paper, fixed rate, derivative, asset-based transactions, all kinds of things, and he was the lead banker in 2004. Um, you helped give Peter some business, actually, uh, a lot of the people in this room. Um, he was lead banker on the economic recovery bonds, uh, about almost 11 billion of them. Uh, those were the voter-approved uh, bonds that were part of Prop 57 on the March 2004 ballot. Um, uh, Peter's very active in the, in the community. He was, um, uh, and on various boards and commissions, he was uh, appointed by Governor Schwarzenegger to the California Performance Review Commission. Um, he was appointed by Governor Davis to the California Student Aid Commission. Um, he served as a, a chair of the board of directors of the UCLA Foundation, um, which is the primary volunteer fundraising organization for the campus. Um, and since uh, December 05, he's a member, been a member of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Um, he's been a member of the board of directors of the James Irvine Foundation. Um, the list goes on. Uh, as a former executive director of the Coro Foundation. I uh, see some Coro people in the room. Um, he also has a, a, a slideshow. I, I, uh, um, he says it's not that scary. It, it scares me a little bit. Friday the 13th is only a few days away, so we're going to get our fright on early. Um, and, and he's going to explain some of the, you know, some of the, the costs of delay uh, and, and of the state's delay in dealing with the structural deficit. And hope he'll also get in to talk a little bit about, um, flesh out a little bit this worst case scenario um, of default that, uh, that uh, John was talking about. So if we've got the slides ready and Peter's ready, let's do this. Worst case scenario is one I'd like to avoid. Um, and uh, just to, to clarify, I, uh, as Joe mentioned, I had a long career with Lehman Brothers in the Public Finance Department. And uh, on September 22nd, when Barclays uh, technically acquired the assets of Lehman Brothers, namely uh, 10,000 employees in North America, um, for the first time, it kind of made me feel like a like a like a sports star, you know, like somebody bought the rights to me. And uh, <laughs> but it didn't come, I assure you, with the sports stars kind of uh, compensation. Um, let me uh, just start by going yeah. ah, to the first page. Um, the cost of California's budget troubles, and I'll try to walk you through just some, some uh, uh, dollar figures as it relates to the cost of issuing debt. Um, all of you, as voters in the state, have been enormously generous by approving uh, several general obligation bond issues over the last several elections, to the point that today, this California State Treasurer's Office has voter authorized but unsold, so uh, bonds where you've already approved, but the market hasn't yet structured and, and placed in the hands of lenders and investors over $62 billion worth of bonds for all kinds of projects. Most recently, of course, the, the largest was California High Speed Rail, which was adopted just this past November. But we're talking about projects in the education sphere, homes for veterans, uh, low-income housing, just all kinds of very important, good uh, infrastructure projects that you all have said to the state of California, hey, make these happen. Make this happen when when the, the timing is appropriate. And the California State Treasurer has roughly laid out a, a schedule based upon uh, feedback he has received from the various uh, agencies and department in state government that there will be approximately oh, anywhere from 10 to $15 billion a year of state geo bond debt that will need to be sold over the next several years in order to accommodate the construction schedules for those various projects that you all have authorized. And so that's well, you know, what can I say? $62 billion is a lot of money in anybody's calculator. And so 
what happens when the state's credit rating, what happens when the state's credit quality starts to decline? Well, there's a real dollar cost to that. Um, given the, the, uh, the challenges of the deficit, uh, debt investors, people who lend the state money, will demand a higher premium due to this additional risk. The state's structural deficit, namely the fact that they're spending more than they take in, is the primary driving factor to lower ratings here at the state. Uh, we can talk all about the dysfunction of the credit markets, and goodness knows I lived through it and have the scars on my back to, to, to show for it, but the bottom line is the state spends more than it takes in. There's only one government in the entire country who can get away with that. It's the one with the printing press in Washington. All the other governments, they can't get away with that for long. You can live off reserves, you can do some things and shucking and jiving, but bottom line is, at some point, you gotta spend what you take in. Um, California's GO bonds are currently uh, in what we call in the A category. You've probably seen the article in the, in the press most recently in the last week about how now they rank 50th of the 50 states. Um, and we can talk about that later during the Q&A. Personally, I think they're probably rated a little, little too low, all things considered, when you compare them to some of the AA states, big states, Illinois, New York, New York, New Jersey, and the like, who are likewise also facing major uh, budget challenges. Um, the one thing, though, that does drive rating agencies nutty, drives them batty, is the fact that California is the only state that says paying off debt service isn't our highest priority. Now, we can all debate the importance of Prop 98 and the fact that it put education ahead of paying back their loans, but other states say, hey, if we get in a bind, we're going to make sure we're going to pay back money to people who lent it to us. California, we say, ah, you're second place. Now, there's still a fair amount of cash to take care of that obligation, and I can run through again some numbers uh, a little bit later, but the bottom line is that's one of those things that causes that rating to be a little low. So let's look at a, a hypothetical 30-year, $1 billion GO bond issuance, plain vanilla, kind of level debt service, no fancy structuring, nothing fancy in terms of bells and whistles. If the state were a double-A credit in today's market, Net debt service on that billion-dollar borrowing, the state would pay a little more than $2 billion in uh, principal and interest <clears throat> over the course of 30 years. If it's a single-A credit, where it is today, if it was issuing these bonds today, if it had, in fact, market access today, which, unfortunately, um, it is challenged, um, you're looking at a, a, an extra interest cost just because of their current rating of an extra almost $60 million, approximately $54 million in change. So multiply $54 million times $62 billion, and you can see a tremendous amount of extra interest cost that you as taxpayers are paying over the life of this debt. And that's money that could be going into textbooks for kids. That's money that could be going into additional police on the street. You name it, whatever John Chung and his elected official colleagues decide is the highest and best use for that cash, that's cash that can't go there. Instead, it's going to pay your borrowings. One other thing I do want to mention. Um, there was a time in 2003 I think it was, <laughs> um, when the state's credit rating actually got below the A category into something called triple B category. Um, that's still investment grade, it's not junk bonds, but it is extremely low. Uh, and, and, and just you know, one bit of fair warning, because if there isn't a budget agreement soon, uh, Moody's has already said, put the state on notice, get a deal by, I think they said April 1st, or else. If the state's in that triple B category, practically speaking, um, a number of the people who lend money in this sector, major bond funds, mutual funds that a lot of you probably have your money in, they're not allowed to buy those bonds. What happens? Um, the state you know, doesn't just pay higher interest costs. At that point, the state is effectively shut out of the market. They can't issue 
$62 billion of triple B bonds. There aren't enough people to lend you money at that level at virtually any price. And so it's terribly important if we want to keep our infrastructure on pace, if we want to continue to build these wonderful projects that we've all approved in the last several years, that that credit rating has got to stay um, in, in an acceptable level. Let me, um, I'm going to skip the next page and then come back to it actually and chat a little bit about the budget deficit and the credit crisis because while the credit crisis, uh, credit market issues have contributed significantly to the state's challenges in terms of borrowing, the structural deficit again is mainly the main issue that is driving some of the state's inability to access markets. Uh, John talked about the, the various challenges in, in terms of the state right now and the budget gap and, and unemployment and some of the challenges we're facing. The state's has two kinds of ratings. Long-term ratings, which again are those ratings in the A category I showed you on the previous slide. They also have something called short-term ratings. Short-term borrowings, John mentioned RANDs and RAWs, revenue anticipation notes, revenue anticipation warrants. The IRS basically gives you an exemption that says, normally you can only borrow tax exempt if you're building things. You're taking money, you're putting sticks in the ground, and you're building infrastructure. However, it does let governments borrow money if they are using it for short-term cash flow and balances. The easiest example of this at the local government level is for counties. Counties, as you know, get a great deal of property tax money in. They get it in December and April when all of us pay our property tax bills. Um, but county expenditures are nice and level throughout the year. And so they've got to go several months where they don't have a lot of revenue coming in. And then in December and April, they have gobs of revenue coming in. Well, the IRS allows you to borrow tax exempt at the beginning of the fiscal year as long as you pay it off at the end of the fiscal year. They're called cash flow notes. Similar process to what a lot of businesses do who have variable cash flow. Makes a lot of sense. The state's short-term ratings, however, have gone from the top tier to the second tier. Okay, what's the big deal of that? Big deal of that is 80% of the people who lend money in this sector are money market funds. Money market funds aren't allowed to lend money to people whose ratings are in the second tier. So what does that mean? It means the next time the state needs to borrow $5 billion for cash flow or $10 billion or as they did in 2003, $11 billion, 80% of their lending base is now gone. And instead, you're going to sovereign wealth funds, you're going to hedge funds, and I can guarantee you they will hold you up for a very pretty penny. And so the, the, the issue of rating is not just one that's kind of intellectually interesting and nice to kind of bang our horn when our rating's better than everybody else. It's, it does have real, live, hard dollar consequences about the state's ability to run its business. Um, two other points I'd want to make, and then Joe, I'll yeah. shut up. Um, <laughs> on uh, this idea of outsourcing decision to voters, because one of the things that, you know, just kind of anticipating questions you might ask, um, you know, what, what uh, punting on questions about tax increases and budget cuts has in our view, various risks and rewards. And just again, and this is in the context of these negotiations, there's been talk of kicking a lot of questions to a special election with voters sometime this spring or sometime this year. And, and sometimes that's necessary. I, I gather one of the solutions from the last budget was uh, asking voters to, quote unquote, modernize the lottery. Uh, and in modernizing the lottery, um, which probably needs to be done if we have to have a lottery, um, the one we have right now, Senator Flores described it as a you know, a Pac-Man lottery in an Xbox world or something like that. Um, and, it, it, you know, it should be modernized if we're going to have such a thing. Um, but to do that, because of the way the original act was written, only the voters can give approval to upgrade the lottery. Um, at the same time, it would also authorize the ability to um, bond against that cash flow. 
which is part of the budget solution already in place for 2009-2010. But the markets will always assume the worst if you go this path. What that means is, okay, let's assume the voters say no, what is plan B? And if you don't have a plan B, it's as though you have no solution at all. And so the cost in the interim for any borrowings you might do or any access you want to make of the market is, uh, is very uh, bad. It also does nothing to address governance dysfunction. Um, you know, uh, the current system clearly is not working. The rating agencies have mentioned it many, many times. Investors hold you up for additional costs because the current system is not working. You know, we have a budget that gets delayed months at a time. Um, going to the voters and constantly saying, what do you think, shows the system's not working. Um, these delays also reduce uh, options and increase costs. If you're going to put something in front of the voters, it takes several months to put it in place. And again, if they say no, you're really hamstrung. The one thing going to the voters does do, however, and that's the light blue bubble here, um, because courts traditionally have been very deferential to voters and their expressed opinions at the ballot box, uh, it limits litigation and boosts market acceptance. So there are, you know, it's not always bad. It's certainly not something I'd recommend the state doing, but if they do, there is a silver lining because it does allow the, uh, the state to uh, forestall some litigation that might otherwise uh, cause even further delays. One last slide, and uh, because it's also been suggested, well, gee, why don't we just do another deficit bond? Oops, sorry. Why don't we do another economic recovery bond um, <laughs> like we did back in 2004? Um, and that, look, you know, professionally speaking, it was a fun deal to work on. It was, it was a real landmark deal. It was an opportunity for me to do some creative things. But boy, um, uh, you know, laying out trying to be somewhat, somewhat um, um, fair about this. I left out some, laid out some benefits and costs here. Um, it would solve some of your short-term needs, um, and it would uh, perhaps, you know, allow for acceptance in the eyes of the voter. Um, but it really severely limits your fle flexibility in the future. I mean, we're still using a quarter cent sales tax to pay off our deficit borrowing from 2004, and we will be using that quarter cent sales tax uh, all the way to 2021. So adding to that repayment means just saddling, literally saddling future generations with more debt. Um, it uh, is also, you know, the fact is sales tax hasn't been performing real well lately, so <laughs> if that becomes one of the options they look at, John, tell them to think about another revenue source. Um, <laughs> no borrowing. Okay. Yeah, well, no exactly. borrowing. Well, thank you very much, Peter. Um, I, I, I feel sufficiently frightened. Um, <laughs> um, let's go to Mark here. Um, uh, Mark Paul is, an, uh, is a senior scholar at the New America uh, Foundation, a uh, colleague of mine, and an award-winning writer, editor, policy expert um, with a great deal of experience both in journalism and in um, government. Um, he covered California for 24 years, uh, first as editorial page editor and national editor of the Oakland Tribune, uh, then as a deputy editorial page editor and columnist for the Sacramento Bee. Uh, we wrote a lot about fiscal policy, health care, economics, urban development, um, political reform. Uh, after leaving the B, he served as deputy treasurer uh, and policy director in the California State Treasurer's Office and as policy director for the 2006 uh, gubernatorial campaign of, of Phil Angelides. Um, he's got a, a, a BA and master's degree in history from Stanford. Um, um, has taught uh, there and at Simon Fraser University. Um, is the author of Diplomacy Delayed, The Atomic Bomb and the Division of Korea, uh, 1945, um, in Child of Conflict, the Korean-American Relationship. Um, and his uh, work appears uh, lots of uh, lots of great publications. Um, 
my question to you, Mark, is we've we've heard about this this budget deficit, this structural deficit. What what is this? What's the source of that problem? And and how do we? What things can we do? Here's a crisis. Crisis is an opportunity. What things can we do um, so we don't get in this position again? Well, the crisis we have now is really a dual crisis. Um, about a third, I mean, California, is, as, as, as Joe and the controller said, has over the next year and a half about a $40 billion gap between what it would spend at current levels of spending and what it would collect in taxes. And of that $40 billion problem, about a third of it is what we in the, in the, in the budget business call a structural deficit. It's baked into our laws. The amount we spend in California and want to spend on schools, on healthcare, on bonds that, that Peter sold is rough, roughly $10 billion a year greater than the amount of revenue that our tax system delivers in normal years at current rates. So we had a structural deficit, we've had a structural deficit in California since early in this decade. Uh, you know, a big piece of it uh, is the, the cut in the vehicle license fee that Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, in, uh, put, uh, that was originally enacted in 1998 and that Arnold Schwarzenegger put the final nails in, in, in the coffin of the VLF in 2003 when he won in the recall election. Um, so we have that structural piece and it's been there every year. Uh, we had it in 2003. We we dodged it by selling bonds in 2004. That that uh, that Peter the, the deal that Peter proposed and worked out for the state. Um, and then we have the other two thirds of our current problem is the recession. I mean, revenues in California have dropped off the cliff, as the controller said. Sales taxes, unprecedented drop in sales tax, largely uh, collections, largely because sales tax is very heavily related to two things in California. It's related to housing. Every, you know, when we build houses, people, uh, the, the builders build, uh, buy building materials, they buy the washing machine, the dishwasher, all the appliances that go in a new house. And then people who buy new houses typically buy a lot of furniture to, to put in those new houses. So uh, sales tax is very closely related to the, to the uh, health of the housing market. And it's also very closely, uh, the other big source is automobile sales. You know, the biggest amount of sales tax that any of us pay is when we go down and buy a, a, buy a, a Toyota or a Ford or, a, or, or another car. So both the, the, the automobile sales have totally collapsed um, in, in California and, of course, across the country and, and the world. So we've seen sales tax go away. We've seen, seen income taxes fall um, largely because, you know, of the, the capital, the stock market, uh, has has fallen off so and the other the bond market and so we you know people of uh, high income people who typically pay a lot of income tax in California in industries like Silicon Valley etc are not going to be paying sales taxes this year and probably next year either unless we see a big turnaround in the stock market and then we've had the third whammy which is sales uh, property taxes normally the most stable 
of tax sources, but because of the housing collapse, uh, the collapse of the housing bubble, we, rather than growing steadily, property taxes are going to be flat, if not fall, in a lot of places in California. Now, the, those property taxes are not paid directly to the state, but th they matter in the state budget because under Proposition 98, the schools get funded out of property taxes, and then what the property taxes don't provide in order to meet the Prop 98 guarantee comes out of the state general fund. So when property taxes fall or are flat in California, the state general fund has to make up the difference in the Prop 98 guarantee. We've never had, certainly since the Great Depression, uh, this kind of fall off in all those tax sources at the same time. So we've taken, taken a big hit. We're not alone. It's going on all across the country. In fact, we're not even the worst state that's worst off. Our, our neighbors in Nevada and Arizona actually have, in percentage terms, larger budget problems than California does because, because they've taken an even bigger hit in their housing markets. Yep. We're, we're running a little short in time before we get to Q&A, but can the feds save us? The feds could save us. Um, the, the feds are going to help us, um, but uh, the, the stimulus package probably will see what the final, you know, when the House and the Senate work out their final, but probably to, they're going to give it, help us with maybe a quarter to at most a third of the problem. They should have helped us with the whole recession-driven part of it. It would have been the best stimulus for the country, but Washington... Uh, so the, the couldn't get its uh, arms around that one this time. Well, let's talk. I mean, and 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 maybe we get more in this in Q and A. But but solutions. What changes should we be making? I'll put the question first to you, and then to both to John and and to and to Peter. Um, well, the, I think our whole system is 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 budget system has flaws and is dysfunctional. I mean, certainly a big source of our current problem is the the two thirds requirement in the legislature for, for passing a, a budgets, appropriations, and tax increases. Um, just to correct one thing you said earlier, Joe, the legislature did pass in December a budget that would have fixed our current problems. Um, it might not have been completely legal, but they did pass it, and the governor, ve <laughs> the, the governor vetoed it. Uh, the, our, we're in this problem in large part because, because we do, we, don't have a functioning democracy in California. And the premise of a democracy is the voters get offered different alternative policies by, by candidates and parties at the ballot box. The voters pick which policy they want to choose, and then those people go and make put those policies into law, and they have power and govern until the voters get tired of them and throw them out again. Um, that's how Things work in Washington. You know, we sometimes the Republicans run the Congress, and sometimes the Democrats run the Congress. Under California's two-thirds rule, nobody can run the legislature unless the two sides can agree. And of course, they you know they disagree profoundly, and the and the voters have picked between them, but they cannot enact. So that would be a big piece of what California needed to do. We would not be in this problem. If, 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 if over the last 10 years, the legislature majority that the, that the, the people had elected was allowed to write the budget. Let's go back to, to John on, on the question of solutions, and also if you might address, should we change two-thirds? And, and also Peter's uh, raising the question of this priority of payments. We're the only state with, uh, uh, you know, that 
pays education first uh, rather than the, uh, the, the folks that we've uh, borrowed money from? Should we change that? Your thoughts? Well, uh, f first, I think the element that hasn't been talked about is actually we need some political leadership uh, in the state of California. If we can get some responsible people, right, we need a couple of Republicans in the state Senate. We need, and it's, I'm not blaming just Republicans, right? Everybody's responsible here. Uh, we need three in the assembly. Uh, we have the big five negotiating, right? Poor Dave Cogdell. I'm not sure he's a Senate uh, president pro tem. No, Senate, Senate Republican, Republican leader, leader, yeah. I don't know if he has a second vote, right? Because I don't know if there's a second Republican who wants to expose themselves in the next, next electoral cycle. Uh, you know, for all those who have voted down a plan, Right. I think we ought to create something where, and I don't, I don't want to create another law to make people offer a plan, but I think for every legislator who said no thus far to everything that's been before them, you have to offer a proposal, right? Because people are suffering, people are struggling, and we have no idea what it would take from you, right, any of those legislators to pass a budget, right? You know, if I was trying to use a, a Willie Brown idea, you know, Willie said, you know, you need to get basic common agreement at the lowest level so that people are invested in the system and you just grow that you know, through different types of agreement. Uh, I think uh, you know, that's a s start that we need. Uh, we also need within the realistic political leadership, we need both the Democrats and the Republicans to budget much more prudently. Right? It is in their interest to look at things optimistically. Right? The Democrats want to protect many essential programs and services. Uh, the Republicans want to offer a tax cut. So they both have an incentive for saying, let's look at the positive side of the numbers, right? And we miss those numbers year after year, right? So both, both sides can get what they want, right? We ought to say, okay, in the event we're going to budget more prudently, in the event that we have up years, right, let's have some type of negotiation where we're going to give people uh, the benefit of those up years. And then we have to take into calculation, it's been discussed here, uh, Mark alluded to a little bit, uh, we're going we're gonna to struggle for a while. Uh, the most volatile portion of California's income stream is capital gains. If you looked at uh, what happened when the stock market hit its peak in 2000, right, in the 1990s, about 24,000 households reported an adjusted gross income here in California of a million dollars or more. When the stock market hit its peak, it went up to 44,000. Right, then the next year after the stock market bubble burst, we were down at 24,000. We had three, we had three to four, uh, we had a year plus of recession. Uh, we had three to four years of recovery and we went back up to 44,000 when real estate was doing very, very well. Right during those good years, uh, you know, the governor put in place a rainy day account, savings account. I don't think it's the best it can be, but at least it's an idea. We need to balance off those good years versus bad years. But on the specific question of two-thirds, would you go to majority? Fifty-five well, percent is on the well, may go on the ballot. Yeah, I would, but I'm also a political realist. The polling numbers against two-thirds are about two-thirds. <laughs> uh, so yeah, the you know I, I'd like to see some drop, but that's not going to happen in the foreseeable future. Uh, so that's going to be a a very difficult hurdle. Uh, and part of it is we have to be realistic. The voters of California wanted term limits. Uh, you have to understand, I don't understand how people attack government differently than business or nonprofits or uh, any other human institution. Government is a human institution. You have, just like any other entity or organization, you have 15 to 20 percent who are ter terrific, you have 20 percent who are good, you have 20 percent who are average, 20 percent below average, and 15 or 20 percent who term limits are for. But the fact of the matter is, right, you have to give those people an opportunity to grow to be good, 
right? These are people making decisions about uh, climate change. These are people making decisions about pay-for-value medicine. These are people talking about experience-based medicine. These are people talking about how you handle investments in sovereign wealth funds. Would you give somebody your portfolio, in essence, what you do, who has only two, three, four years experience? Right? I, I wouldn't put my investment portfolio in that type of experience, right? And so that's why you need to let what people grow in the legislative process. <laughs> Peter, you want to chime in on solutions before we go to questions? Um, yeah, I'll throw out a, an idea as it relates to the federal government helping California. You know, you think about stimulus, and goodness knows that's a word that's just been in the news constantly for the last, what, 30 days, 45 days. Um, you know, here in California, we've approved $62 billion of bonds on major infrastructure projects. Imagine if we could figure out a way to put that money to work quickly and really kind of fast-track those projects and take monies that the, the voters have already said, hey, let's go do this and make it happen fast. Well, uh, under the current circumstances, the state doesn't have market access to sell that. Um, I would love to see, and, and this parrots off of uh, an idea Barney Frank um, uh, mentioned last week. Last week he said, oh, no, let's just have the federal government guarantee state GO bonds. I'm not sure that I'm crazy about that idea, but a, a, but a, a mechanism whereby the state can, for a small fee, um, enable the federal government to backstop state GO bonds so that if the state was ever delayed in making a payment, the federal government could step in and guarantee the timely repayment and then negotiate with the state and make sure the federal government itself got paid off. You're not letting anybody off the hook. You're not necessarily guaranteeing it. You're just guaranteeing timely interest and payment and so that the, the, the investor himself or herself isn't left holding the bag. That would suddenly dramatically increase the availability of private sector capital that would come in to fund these projects in such a way that, I mean, it would be a tenfold increase in uh, availability of capital for state infrastructure projects, which have already been approved. It's, it's something that wouldn't cost the state a lot. And ultimately, the, the feds, if the program works like we all think, would actually make a little bit of coin in the process. Mark, you wanted to jump yeah, in? Yeah, I quick? just wanted to add uh, one, one thing. The controller, I agree with the controller that political leadership is a, is a serious problem. Um, but you know he has to run for election, so he can't tell you the whole story, and 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 that is you know the, the biggest problem in California is you. I mean, Californians are addicted to the notion that they can have something for nothing. I mean, you look, and I, I won't ask you to raise your hands to embarrass you about this, but if you look at the polling over and over again, Californians want more health care. They think we need to spend more on education. They want to spend more on higher education. This is not just true of Democrats. It is also true of Republicans. But in those same polls, Californians are almost equally divided in saying they don't want any tax increases. Um, and so Californians, you are magical realists. And, 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 and you believe the way you square the difference is you know, you tell yourself, if only we could get rid of all that fat and waste and a fraud and abuse in government, you know, we could have everything we want and not pay anything. Well, I mean, we can get into it in the questions, but it's just not true. And, and I don't want anybody to leave here, you know, and shaking their head about the politicians in Sacramento if you're not willing to take some of your own responsibility. Okay. Well, let's have questions from the people who have driven us into this hole. Uh, <laughs> 
Thank you. We'll now begin our Q&A portion of our discussion tonight, and our event is being recorded for both video and audio podcasts, so please state your name before your question. All questions must be speak spoken into the microphone. There's two of us going around. Also, at this time, our donation buckets will be going around, and we do appreciate any and all support. Thank you. Uh, hi, my name is Mark Wallace. I have a quick question. This is related to the issue just brought up, actually, about the propositions. It seems to me that every time the um, proposition comes up, it's always amending the Constitution. It's not so much passing laws. It's just forcing the state to, you know, ties its hands in terms of its, uh, in terms of its revenue stream, in terms of its outlays. It seems to me that it's, it's, that's part of why the state is just falling apart financially. Is it time maybe to just say, start over? rewrite the Constitution? John, what do you think about that? There's talk about a constitutional convention in yeah. the air. Yeah. I, I wouldn't mind if we had significant revisions in the California Constitution. What I am concerned about is that if we had a California Constitution, how unwieldy the process would be. Uh, because you would still have very powerful special interests uh, influence the agenda to a significant degree. and. As difficult as it is for the residents, the voters of California to understand a single issue, could you see if you had a California Constitution, a constitutional convention with a plethora of ideas and people trying to debate and fashion a solution? Uh, so unless we could do that in some orderly, thoughtful, deliberative manner, I'm afraid we might create opportunities for uh, really uh, devastating the Constitution. Mark, you've, I know you've thought a little bit about a convention. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that, that um, we've reached a point in California life where a lot of people are saying, you know, the system really is broken and we need to rethink it. You know, most states, a lot of states have automatic provisions for every 30 years or so sort of to rewrite their constitutions. California, we, we've got a process in, in, embedded in the constitution that requires the legislature to call a convention or whatever. But we haven't had one since 1878, 1879. Um, we are operating with, a, for instance, a legislature that has the same number of members as it, as it did 150 years ago in a state of, of a million people, which means that you know an assembly district in California um, or is, is a half a million people elect a member of the assembly, a million people uh, in a district of, a, of state senate. And there's lots about California that we've, we've just allowed to, to go by, we've grown, we've changed, and, and the system is broken. And I think there are a lot of groups. Um, Bay Area Council, a business organization in the Bay Area, has called for a constitutional convention. They'll be in Sacramento later this month, a meeting which New America is a sponsor of to, to, to look at you know, how California might do fundamental revision. Can I follow up on that? Actually, two smaller revisions trying to fix the, uh, the process. First of all, uh, in my reform package to try to assist the California budget this year would be one to put a sunset on tax credits or tax breaks, right, so that we would have an automatic review. Some of these laws on the book are very, very antiquated and it takes a two-thirds vote. Uh, so it's very difficult uh, to eliminate a lot of these measures, uh, which hamper California's nimbleness in trying to respond to financial difficult, financially difficult situations. Uh, so I propose that. Secondly, uh, on ballots, a particular measure would come with a lot more financial disclosure so that if you had a, a bond, it would not only talk about the cost of that bond, but what it does relative to the long-term costs for the state of California, how it impacts bonds, uh, 
the, you know, what it would do in terms of borrowing costs so that we have greater disclosure so that voters have a greater context to make their decisions. Another question. Todd Kerner. Um, apropos to your comment, Mark, before the Q&A, I wonder if each of you could comment on the wisdom of the proposition system in California, and if you think it's flawed, how it might be repaired. Well, the uh, one way it, it can be repaired is to, to keep require the same fiscal discipline of voters that we nominally require of the legislature. I mean, under, under the Constitution right now, the, the legislature is required to adopt a balanced budget. Um, it's required to pay for, at least nominally, for what, what it is we spend. There's no such requirement on things that voters do at the ballot box. So I've proposed um, that, that every measure, both initiatives and bond measures, come with a funding source that would cover the uh, either, either a, a offsetting reduction in spending um, to cover the cost of the new program or a tax increase. Like, and we do this at the local level in California. When you pass a school bond here in Los Angeles, you at the same time are increasing your property tax by the amount needed to pay back those bonds. We could do that in California. I mean, we proved school bonds at the state in 2006 at the state budget in the, on the ballot. Um, we could have paid for those with an $80 a year uh, increase in the property tax on the average house in California. And there, in fact, there are bills, uh, constitutional amendments in the legislature this year, one on the Senate side sponsor, a bipartisan bill uh, with many of the leaders of the Senate to require initiatives to, to pay for themselves. Anyone else want to jump in on that? You know, I would love to see something on, uh, when initiatives are proposed. You know, they're usually proposed by special interest groups uh, as a way of kind of getting around the legislative process. If there was some kind of mechanism such that when the language was submitted, it actually had to have some form of public hearing so there could be greater transparency on the very, very front end before the actual campaign got started and when voters were starting to focus so that there was some, some ability for both the press and the legislators to weigh in for those initiatives that are particularly poorly drafted, which only tie everybody's hands later on down the road. I think those are both great significant reforms. Let's have another question. Hi, my name is Kimberly Sinclair, and I'm a, a high school teacher, and I thank God for Prop 98, because I don't think people want kids of LA running through the streets of LA. Um, my question is, what pressure um, either is there or could be created for on the state assembly to pass a budget by that July deadline because this is not the first year that July has come and gone without a budget and I don't see the state coming to a screeching halt so I'm wondering because this is a repetitive thing that happens so it just happens it's a larger number this year but it happens over and over so I want to know what we all here or you can do to encourage the legislature to meet that deadline. Any ideas? Well, there, there's three solutions that are out there. Uh, Speaker Bass and uh, Senate President Pro Tem, uh, Daryl Steinberg, uh, have a proposal that if you sign a budget, or if you get a budget done by a certain date, it only requires a majority. Uh, and so that would take place sometime in June. Uh, State Senator Mimi Walters and I offered another proposal, uh, something we had in effect earlier uh, in California that 
if you have population growth plus inflation growth below a certain percentage, then you could pass that budget uh, if it was below that threshold by a majority vote. And if you exceeded that threshold, then it would require what we have today, a two-thirds vote. And you have Governor Schwarzenegger, who uh, in his state of the state had a pretty neutral speech, uh, and this is the one thing that offended the legislators, said, if you uh, don't get a budget done in time, we're not going to pay you, and so on and so on. So those, those were the three ideas that were, have been discussed and thrown out. Get rid of term limits. The dumbest public policy that all of us have ever been responsible for putting in place. I mean, imagine. Here's the state of California, $100 billion general fund, 225,000 employees. Can you imagine a private company saying, hey, we're going to rotate our leadership every six years? I can't imagine anybody operating that way. The state can't run itself that way. They need to dump that particular provision to get some people who have some matter of experience so they can make these kind of decisions, experience and relationships that allow that process to work. Look, when Willie Brown was speaker, process wasn't perfect. There were <laughs> delayed budgets, but I guarantee it worked a heck of a lot better than it works now. Another question here. Harold Kalishman. I'd like to ask uh, Peter Taylor about the bond ratings since they play such a large part in financing. Uh, what, do you think of, uh, what do you think the probability uh, is of uh, the initiative that Bill Lockyer and uh, Richard Blumenthal started last year to have the bond rating agencies rate state bonds, municipal bonds, the same way they rate corporate bonds, and as a result, uh, give them a higher rating? Yeah. And, that, and that's uh, Bill Lockyer, the treasurer of the state, and Richard Blumenthal, the attorney general of Connecticut. Right. It was a, uh, an effort. Right now, there are two rating scales. Um, there's something called a global rating scale, and there's something called a municipal rating scale. Uh, municipal rating scale only applies to state and local governments. Global scale applies to everything else. And so what you have is uh, some corporate bonds, rated AA and AAA, that actually have higher probability of default than a municipal bond that's rated single A or even a triple B. And Treasurer Lockyer, quite appropriately, said, why do you have double standards? The fact of the matter is you should be looking at default ratios on all bonds and kind of comparing them so that somebody who's making a, a logical decision on an after-tax yield on a tax-exempt bond versus a taxable yield on a, on a taxable bond and trying to decide one versus the other can take this into account and do an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. Um, he came 95% of the way towards making that happen. Literally, uh, Moody's had actually made an announcement that in mid-October they were set to transition state ratings to the global scale. And then what happened? Uh, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. The entire uh, financial markets froze up. And uh, the entire effort of Moody's and Fitch was delayed indefinitely. Um, we still think they get there because you can't intellectually justify having these two different scales. The way they do it is they say, well, gee, um, it's a way, if you use the traditional global scale for all municipal bonds, all municipal bonds will be AA or AAA to which we say, that's fine, that's okay, if that is their true reflection of their, their probability of default. Um, so we, we think they get there eventually. Standard & Poor's has been the laggard on this. Uh, not optimistic they'll get there. But the other two, you know, once the markets kind of get back to normal this year, <laughs> next year, <laughs> I, think, um, I think they will get there because it's just intellectually impossible to justify otherwise. And I, I can interject. I was part of those negotiations with the ratings agencies. Uh, Standard & Poor's is strongly resistant. Uh, the, uh, and in the discussions with the rating agencies, right, they were trying to create different standards uh, by which 
and we were interested in exploring those standards. Uh, you know, they were looking at financial management standards by which we could argue a different case uh, by which we could upgrade California's credit ratings. And I must say, it, it takes a certain amount of chutzpah for any rating agency, you know, to, to stand firm on their, uh, you know, on, on these kind of things, given their track record in the last year. We've got another question here. Hi, Ursula Hyman. Um, we've talked a lot about stimulus from the federal government, but we haven't talked about what the state can do to attract businesses. In the last year, not only have we lost jobs, we have seen major employers leave to other states where there are incentives to come, where there are tax credits to create jobs, where infrastructure is being built. What can we do to compete with those states? Well, I think, first of all, it, it, it is, I think it's incorrect to think that, you know, this, this idea that, that businesses are leaving California, um, the Public Policy Institute of California has done the most intensive studies of, of business locations, uh, and they have found that there's practically no out movement of businesses on net in California. That the, 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 between businesses moving in and businesses moving out is basically a wash. That the biggest kind of movements of businesses are within California, you know, from the coast to the to the Inland Empire, et cetera. So, but there are our long-term economic health. It really is an issue in California, and but all the research shows that the things that matter most are an educated workforce and a strong infrastructure. And we in California are falling down on both counts. And in fact, this budget crisis is, is you know, we're doing the, ant, the, the opposite of stimulus. No matter how we solve it locally, we're gonna hurt the economy because you, there are only two choices. You can, you can cut spending, and cutting spending is in, in, in government is largely firing people. It's laying people off. It's cutting their wages, whatever. I mean, Sacramento, you know, the B last week in Sacramento had stories about, about when they did the first of the furloughs last Friday at state workers, you know, that the restaurants and the, and the stores in downtown Sacramento were empty. Well, you know, they're going to start laying off, laying off uh, waitresses and, and, and cooks, et cetera, because, you know, on, on Fridays, they're not going to have as much business. So on the, 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 what we do in, with budget stuff is going to, to solve this budget crisis is going to hurt state in the short term. What we need to do is not hurt it in the long term. And we, over the last 25 years in California, have really been killing ourselves, particularly in the area of higher education. You know, we are already on track that California in 20 years will have less educated workforce then than it does today. And in a world in which there are going to be more demand for edu higher educated people, you know, that means that California is going to have a lower, likely to have a lower standard of living in 2030 than it does, than it would otherwise have today if we don't do something about, you know, not closing the door to college and, and what, which is what we're doing in this budget crisis. And we do what's necessary to get more kids ready and go to college to fill those jobs. John? Yeah, let me add a third input. Uh, th there are three elements you need for economic stimulus or turn around the economy uh, as the economy is measured. Uh, Mark referenced two of them. The first one is human capital, which is the, you know, the education and the talent that you have available. Uh, the second is infrastructure. The third is financial capital. And we know that our financial markets are, in, uh, are struggling at, the, at this particular point in time. Uh, to answer what we can do, uh, I think our, the tax system 
The administrative system here in California is far too difficult for an ordinary small entrepreneurial entrepreneur to understand. Uh, we're gonna have to coalesce a lot of our agencies. We're gonna have to reduce filing requirements. Uh, part of this is we're gonna have to stand up to many of the strong special interest lobbies. Uh, between the federal and state tax code, there are 10 million words. Now, I was a tax law specialist at the Internal Revenue Service and have read hundreds of thousands of words, but I would make mistakes, right, if I had to step into an area that I was not comfortable and did not understand. We have to make sure that we try to reduce the strain and the focus of people's energy and time into those areas and that they can focus uh, productively. And then, you know, if you use, look at Elvin Toffler and his third wave and, you know, we obviously have to adjust government to technology and be more responsive to what's happening in the private sector. So if you have areas where there's 24 hours of activity, you know, he referenced Japan, then we ought to set up a government system that works so that we are in people's lives so that it makes sense. Uh, so those are just a, a couple of the areas that we can improve upon. You know, I'd encourage you to go to the uh, California Performance Review website, CPR.gov. Um, you know, Ursula, I don't know how we compare vis-a-vis -vis other states, but I do know it's awfully hard to do business in this state. Um, and frankly, there are so many agencies and departments to go to, and they don't communicate well with each other. So, um, you know, I'm sympathetic. I, I don't know if we're worse or better, but I do know it's hard to get things done. The, the whole effort of the CPR four years ago was to try to skinny that down, to try to improve the communication amongst departments and frankly have fewer so that, you know, there was, when you need the permits, you go one place instead of 10. You know, that we could do a better job on. If any other questions? Questions up front here. This will be our final question of the night. Uh, we want to invite all of you to our reception where you, you can further discuss tonight's topic with our panel. Thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, my name is Todd Beaton, and uh, the U.S. Senate just cut uh, $40 billion in state uh, fiscal stabilization funds from the stimulus package, which I believe means California's share goes from $8 billion to $4 billion. Can you talk about the real-world impact of that on Californians and the importance of restoring uh, that money in conference? Well, I can, uh, you know, 75% uh, of what goes through the state budget goes out to local communities, either to, to, to local governments or to individuals. So when we're looking at budget cuts and we're, we're looking at uh, less money uh, for people uh, to support families who are losing their job, um, we're looking in the, in the current, current budget uh, at, at kicking nearly a couple hundred thousand kids off of payments under CalWORKs. Um, across the board, the, all this, we're closing the, you know, limiting the number of people who can go to qualified students, students who made all, studied all their lives, they made all the grades, they qualify for UC, they're not going to be able to get into UC this year. Um, and, you know, I, I, I looked what, at what happened in the Senate, and it reminded me that, that uh, you know, there are some, you know, uh, patients, I mean, doctors hate them, who, who uh, they get prescribed antibiotics uh, or medicine, and but they only take half the pills that they're prescribed uh, because they want to save some money, so they end up taking a subclinical dose, uh, and and that's what the centrists in the Senate did last uh, this, last week. They took money out of that stimulus bill, you know, so that it may be a subclinical uh, dose of stimulus for the country, uh, but they're congratulating themselves on saving money, even though it means the recession will be longer and it'll hurt more Americans. Anyone else want to jump in here? Yeah, if you look at the. the if you look at the recent years uh, before the 
the pop recently um, at the beginning of this decade, uh, consumer spending made up about two-thirds of uh, national GDP, about 66% of GDP, uh, and the remainder, or close to the remainder being uh, business spending. Uh, during this early part of this decade, people used so much leverage, right? A lot of it from the real estate, just they took on a lot of debt. And so that consumer spending jumped up from 66% to 72%. Uh, we are in a massive time of deleveraging, perhaps too fast to deleveraging, and it's hurting today's market. Now, to show the power of the effect of the spending, it's estimated in the next year plus that we are going to have $3 trillion less spending by consumers and businesses. Uh, if you look at the optimistic side of Barack spending being $800 billion, right, there is still a significant gap as to activity that's going to happen in the private mar market, right? So. Uh, these budget solutions are brick by brick. Uh, there's no big solution as there is none for the state budget here in California, but all those things make a difference. And we have to make sure that we have policy on top of policy that makes sense, right? Peter talked about uh, you know, the, the assistance from the federal government in terms of you know, some of the private activity bonds, some of the general obligation bonds. Actually, we sent a letter to Brock's administration asking them to do that early, earlier on sure. uh, because we wanted to make sure that I sit on the pool of money investment board which provides for the loans for infrastructure projects. We had to shut that down because if we financed all the infrastructure projects, it would have been $6 billion. It would have been all the cash that we had remaining left to pay all our bills for the month of February. But if we can take some of that side money that we would have otherwise paid, use it, uh, have the federal government provide that backstop then in essence we got some free funding so that we can create some of these projects going once again. So it's those little ideas, but they, you know, they made up 2,000 plus projects here in the state of California. Tiny little question, uh, Chair's prerogative here before we finish. Um, uh, word today was Valentine's Day. Nothing says I love you like a budget deal by Valentine's Day. Uh, if that happens, if, and it's somewhat responsive to the problems, are we out of the woods cash-wise, or do we still have to get, are we still kind of in the thick of it for a while? Yeah, I describe it as this, right? Everybody thinks once we have a budget solution, we're okay, right? We need a both, as you pointed out in your opening presentation, we need a good budget solution and we need a cash solution. Uh, imagine if you've been unemployed for a while, right, and you have all these bills line up. Uh, the moment you get a new job is a moment of great excitement, but it does not provide the cash in your wallet or your bank account to pay all those bills. Right, you need the solutions, the solutions need some time. So for instance, if you pass some taxes, think about the major taxes uh, to remedy the deficit. Income taxes, right? That's not gonna happen until next year. Corporate taxes, that doesn't take place until next year. Sales taxes, uh, if you have a 1% increase, a, a penny increase, in a good economy, that brings in $6 billion, right? That's static effect, not dynamic effect, and then we have a weaker economy now, so it might not bring in the full $6 billion, but that's over a year period of time. And then I sit on the taxing authority, so we usually ask people not to impose that tax until the beginning of the next quarter because we don't want to screw up and make very difficult for all the businesses who have to make the adjustment, who have to file all those reports mid-period. Could you see somebody filing 7.25% collecting taxes from you, report that for 40 days, and then calculate 8.25% for the remainder of the, that quarter, right? We'll have all these businesses filing complaints or appeals because we just made it very difficult them to properly report taxes. 
All right. Well, on that note, I think we have to conclude. Let's yeah. thank uh, John, Peter, and Mark, and, and thank you all for coming. Uh, join us at the reception. <laughs>